To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, check us out at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. You're in Florida in the 1980s. Crime is skyrocketing. You're a young, 17-year-old female riding your bike home from work. A known rapist attacks you, kidnaps you, and holds you as a sex slave. A 26-hour nightmare has begun. What would you do? Would you scream for help? Would you fight back? How would you survive? This is Forensic Tales, episode number 114, The Classified Ad Rapist. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. Sharing true crime stories isn't just about the story themselves. It's about getting justice for the victims and their families. As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new exciting cases, conduct in-depth, fact-based research, produce and edit this weekly show. And for supporting the show, you'll get early ad-free access to weekly episodes, exclusive merchandise not available anywhere else, bonus content, shout-outs and episodes, and priority on case suggestions. Before we get into the episode, we've got a new supporter that I want to thank. Thank you so much, Terry Kay, for supporting the show. To learn more about supporting Forensic Tales, consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Forensic Tales, or by simply clicking the support link in the show notes. You can also help support the show by leaving a positive rating with a review. Now, let's jump right into this week's case. In 1980, women in Florida became the target of a serial rapist. His M.O. was simple yet effective. He browsed the classified ads in local papers like the Penny Saver, looking for women selling appliances. Once he found his victim, he contacted the woman to set up an appointment. He came across as this nice, honest guy, simply interested in upgrading his appliances for his house. Once he showed up at the seller's house, the first thing he did was make sure that the woman was alone. If her husband was home, he came up with some sort of excuse as to why he had to leave. But if she was alone, he made his move. Once inside the house, he would ask his victim to use the bathroom. Then, safely behind the closed bathroom door, he would pull out his rape kit. A kit filled with duct tape, knives, and rope. After getting his kit together, he left the bathroom, found his victim, 
pulled out his knife, bound her, then raped and assaulted her. Sometimes he even robbed the woman for any money or jewelry inside the house. These attacks went on for months. Women from Fort Lauderdale, Ocala, Miami, and Dade County became targets. From 1980 until 1983, over 50 innocent women were assaulted by the man who became known as the classified ad rapist. By 1983, the rapes in the area dramatically slowed. But within a few short months, similar attacks popped up in Tampa Bay. And by 1984, the rapes graduated to murder. Instead of merely raping his victims, the classified ad rapist changed his M.O. Once he spotted a potential victim, he pulled over next to her and convinced her to get inside his car. Once inside the car, he raped his victim, then drove to a deserted rural location where he killed them. Most women were strangled to death and some of them had their throats slit. Most of them were found bound with their hands and feet tied. The classified ad rapist met his first murder victim in 1984. On March 27, 1984, he abducted, raped, and strangled 20-year-old Artise Ann Wick. At the time, Artise Wick worked as a sex worker. Unfortunately, we know that sex workers are at a much higher rate of becoming victims of violent crimes. Many of them don't have family and friends who report them missing right away. Sex workers often work by themselves. They work alone. So when they're abducted, there are no eyewitnesses. And again, unfortunately, it's simply the nature of their business. Most of them go with men to a secluded area, making for the perfect place for an assault. A little less than two months later, the classified ad rapist struck again. This time, it was a 19-year-old from Southern California. On May 13, 1984, Peggy Long came to Tampa in February and worked as a dancer at the Starlight Lounge and Sly Fox Lounge. She came out to Florida to save up money to study art and cinema at the University of South Florida. Instead, the police found her naked and bound by an overpass on East Bay Road. She'd been strangled to death by a piece of rope. Next to Peggy Long's body, the police got their first solid piece of physical evidence, red fibers. 14 days later, it was 22-year-old Michelle Sims. Also from Southern California, Michelle Sims worked as a receptionist at a Fort Peace massage parlor before coming to Tampa earlier that month. She was also a former beauty contestant. The police found her body stabbed and bound near Interstate 4 overpass by Plant City. She was naked and bound with her throat slit. Although Michelle was a former beauty contestant and former receptionist, she was reportedly involved in sex work. On Michelle's body, the police collected hair. Brown, medium-length Caucasian head hairs were found on her body. And the police also found clothing belonging to her killer. The classified ad rapist's fourth victim came later that month. But this time, his victim somehow managed to survive. In May 1984, Linda Nuttall answered an ad in the Penny Saver 
to sell some of her and her husband's furniture. When the rapist showed up at her front door, he asked her if her husband was home. She said no, but her children were. Even with her children inside of the house, he sexually assaulted her. But, miraculously, Linda Nuttall survived. June 24, 1984, came the fifth victim, 22-year-old Elizabeth Lodenbach. Unlike the previous victims, Elizabeth worked as a factory worker and didn't have a history of sex work. The police believed she was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Elizabeth lived down the street from the exact location where the classified ad rapist picked up his victims. She probably became his victim after spotting her walking down Nebraska Avenue on her way home. By the fifth victim, the police started to collect additional forensic evidence. Not only do they recover red fibers next to Peggy Long's body, but they also recovered similar fibers on Elizabeth Lodenbach and Michelle Sims' bodies. Once they had enough samples, investigators sent the red fiber samples to the FBI lab for forensic testing. The test revealed two different red fibers at all three of these crime scenes. Based on the material composition of the fibers, investigators theorized the fibers came from carpet. And because they found two different types of fiber, the suspect drove a car containing two different types of carpet fibers. Of course, this discovery also meant that they were hunting a serial killer. The sixth victim came on September 7, 1984. The police found the body of 21-year-old Vicki Marie Elliott in a wooded and secluded area northeast of Tampa. Vicki went missing while on her way home from waitressing at the Ramada Inn. Investigators found red fibers on her body at the medical examiner's office consistent with the earlier victims. Before her murder, Vicki hoped to return home to Michigan to study to become a paramedic. Bodies were popping up right and left, so authorities needed all their homicide detectives working on this case. So all homicide detectives of the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department were all now assigned to the case. Then came 18-year-old Chanel Williams. On October 7th, the police found Chanel's body. Unlike the previous victims, she'd been shot in the head and neck. Chanel had recently moved to Tampa only one month before her murder. And, like many of the others, Chanel worked as a sex worker. When investigators tested Chanel's clothing, they found more of those tiny red fibers. A week later, the police found the body of 28-year-old Karen Dinsfriend. At the time of her murder, she was also said to be working as a sex worker and had a history of drug use. When the police discovered her body, she'd been strangled with ligature marks around her neck in an orange grove in northeastern Hillsborough. Next was 22-year-old Kimberly Hops. Authorities found her body on the side of U.S. 301 North on October 31, 1984. A few days later, on November 3, 17-year-old Lisa McVeigh came along. But Lisa McVeigh's story was quite different than the others. 
Lisa was riding her bike home from her job at the local Krispy Kreme donut shop in northern Tampa around 2 o'clock in the morning. The classified ad rapist spotted her and decided that she would become his next victim. Once he approached her, he pushed her off her bicycle and dragged her into his car. He then blindfolded her and drove her to his apartment. For the next 26 hours, he repeatedly raped and assaulted her. While Lisa was being raped, she tried connecting with her attacker during this entire time. She talked to him. She asked him questions about his personal life. Lisa tried everything she could to try and get this guy to open up to her and to start talking. This strategy seemed to work for her. Because after a little while, he did start to open up. He started telling her about his past relationship issues. He told her about his trouble with women. At one point, Lisa offered to be his girlfriend and told him that if he didn't kill her, that she wouldn't tell anyone what had happened. She even at one point made up a story about being the sole caregiver for her sick father. What she was doing was coming up with anything she could think of to try and save her life. She wanted this guy to see her as a human, not just another one of his victims. And if she could get him to sympathize with her, maybe he would agree to let her go. Not only is this incredibly smart, but she also does something, well, she does something genius. While still blindfolded, Lisa used the bathroom, and when she's in the bathroom, she started touching everything she could leave her fingerprints on. She touched the sink, the shower. She touched everything, hoping to leave behind her fingerprints if, in fact, she was killed Then the police could use the fingerprints to identify her killer. The following day, this is now November 4th, the classified ad rapist ordered Lisa to get back inside his car. On the way to the car, Lisa peeked down the edge of the blindfold and saw that her killer had red carpet. Together, they drove a short distance to a 24-hour ATM. While the car was parked, Lisa peeked down the edge of her blindfold again. This time, she caught a glimpse of the word Magnum on the car dashboard. After the quick stop at the ATM, the classified ad rapist drove a little farther down the road, pulled over, and told Lisa to get out. He said, keep your blindfold on for five minutes, then you can take it off. He then sped off, leaving Lisa McVeigh alive. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. 
If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash forensic tales. That's patreon.com slash forensic tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Lisa McVeigh went straight to the police to report what had happened to her. She told them everything that she could remember from the last 26 hours. The color of the car, the word Magnum on the car's dashboard, the red carpet. She told investigators that they went to the ATM just moments before releasing her. She told them everything that she could remember. Now, how could Lisa be able to remember everything so clear and so calmly. Sadly, in the months leading up to her encounter with the classified ad rapist, she'd been physically and sexually abused by her grandmother's boyfriend. So despite being blindfolded, abused, sexually assaulted, she remained calm and she was able to recall minute details of the entire attack, something that many people in her situation couldn't do. Investigators collected Lisa's clothing for forensic testing. These tests revealed the same red carpet fibers discovered on the earlier victims. After linking Lisa's rape case to the murders, a task force was formed consisting of the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, the Tampa Police Department, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the Pasco County Sheriff's Office, and the FBI. All these agencies came together for one thing— to identify and catch the classified ad rapist before he struck again. While the police worked with Lisa to get an identity for the classified ad rapist, two more victims were found. First, 18-year-old Virginia Lee Johnson disappeared from Nebraska Avenue in late October. The police discovered her body on November 6th near Morris Bridge Road in nearby Pasco County. Then on November 11, 1984, the police found 21-year-old Kim Marie Swan. Kim worked as a dancer at the Sly Fox, the same club Peggy Long worked at. The police found her body underneath an overpass on Orient Road. Like earlier victims, she'd been strangled to death. Investigators found the same red carpet fibers at both crime scenes. Besides the red carpet fibers, the biggest tip the police had was Lisa McVeigh's description of the car, specifically the word Magnum on the car's dashboard. After a bit of car research, they learned that Magnum on the dashboard was unique to all 1978 Dodge Magnum models. So now that they've got a make, model, and year of the car, they ran a search and got their hands on a list of all 1978 Dodge Magnum owners in Hillsborough County. Then, they subpoenaed the record for all bank ATMs in the area. The hope was that they could compare the list of 1978 Dodge Magnum owners to the list of people who used an ATM in the area. Bingo, they got a hit. After comparing the two lists side by side, Detectives found out that only one 1978 Dodge Magnum owner had used an ATM at 3 o'clock a.m. on November 4th. The owner was identified as Bobby Joe Long. Who is Bobby Joe Long, a.k.a. the classified ad rapist? 
Robert Joseph Long was born on October 14, 1953, in West Virginia. After his parents divorced in 1955, he moved with his mom to Miami, Florida. Many forensic psychologists believe Bobby Long's childhood was the perfect storm for creating a violent serial killer. As a kid, he suffered from at least three major head injuries. He also shot and killed his family's dog. In addition, he was born with a genetic disorder characterized by an extra chromosome that caused him to grow male breast. This disorder caused him to be constantly bullied by classmates in school. His hatred towards women started as a child. Bobby slept in the same bed as his mom until he was 13 years old. His mom, who worked as a cocktail waitress, was reported to wear revealing clothing around Bobby and would often bring home strange men. As a teenager, Bobby suffered another accident. This time, it was a motorcycle accident. During his recovery from the crash, Bobby developed an obsessive habit of masturbating. And when I say an obsessive habit, he was doing it at least five times a day. After graduating high school, Bobby married his high school sweetheart, whom he met at 13 years old. Her name was Cynthia Bartlett. Together, the couple had two children. It seemed like there was hope for Bobby Long for a brief moment. But... His normal life didn't last long. Bobby Long started wandering around his neighborhood looking for women who were home alone. If he thought someone was home alone, he knocked on their front door and said that he only wanted to talk to them. Bobby and Cynthia divorced in 1980. Then he moved from California out east to Florida. And his obsession with sex and hatred for women moved with him. Within a year of moving to Florida, the rapes started happening in Fort Lauderdale, Ocala, Miami, and Dade County, Florida. The police believe he's responsible for at least 50 rapes in the area between 1980 and 1983, the time he became known as a classified ad rapist. Back in 1981, the police actually arrested Bobby Long, and he went to trial for at least one of these rapes. He, in the end was convicted. But Bobby appealed his conviction and requested a new trial. Now, his request for a new trial ended up being granted. But before a new criminal trial could take place, prosecutors dropped charges against him, citing lack of evidence. This decision meant that Bobby Long was free to continue his assaults on women. Bobby Long eventually graduated from rape to murder in March of 1984 when he killed his first victim, Artis Wick. Over the next eight months, he murdered at least nine women and sexually assaulted two others, including Lisa McVeigh. To obtain his victims, he drove around areas known for prostitution. Then, after approaching the women, he convinced them to get inside his car. He then drove to his apartment, bounding his victims with rope before sexually assaulting them. Some he strangled to death, others he killed by bludgeoning them or slitting their throats. He often dumped and placed their bodies in provocative or unique poses, like spreading their legs apart. This is another common ritual serial killers share. 
they tend to pose their victims' bodies in provocative ways to somehow create this spectacle or this wow factor. These poses shock the first person that discovers their victims. Of Long's victims, five were identified as sex workers, two worked as exotic dancers, one was a factory worker, one was a student, and one remains unknown. On November 16, 1984, the police finally arrested Bobby Long outside a movie theater. Initially, the police only arrested him on charges related to the sexual assault and kidnapping of Lisa McVeigh. After he was arrested, Bobby Long signed a formal Miranda waiver and agreed to sit down and talk with detectives. Not surprisingly, when detectives sat down and interviewed him, they had many more questions than simply those questions related to Lisa McVeigh's case. They wanted to find out if he was willing to talk about all the other murders. At his arrest, Long was wanted by three jurisdictions throughout the Tampa Bay area after forensic evidence successfully linked him to the murders. Forensic evidence including clothing, carpet fibers, semen, ligature marks, and rope knots. At first, Long confessed to the assault on Lisa McVeigh, but he denied involvement in any of the other murders. He said, yeah, I did that to Lisa McVeigh, but I don't know what you're talking about with these other victims. But detectives don't let him off the hook that easy. They continued to press him and let him know about all the forensic evidence they had against him. The fiber evidence proved to be one of the most critical pieces of evidence collected. Authorities found the same red carpet fiber from eight out of the 10 victims. The other two victims were linked by hair evidence. Bobby Long's hair was found on two of the victims' clothing. Then, there were the ligature marks and consistent rope knots. Many of the victims were linked to Bobby Long because they had the same ligature marks around their necks, indicating they were strangled in similar ways. Many of the victims also had the same knot tied around their neck. This suggested that the same person was responsible for tying all the knots. Investigators also found tire marks at two of the crime scenes. The tire impressions were from Long's vehicle. By the end of the police interrogation, Bobby Long confessed to the 10 known murders plus Lisa McVeigh's rape and kidnap. Bobby Long's first criminal trial was held in Dade City, Florida on April 22, 1985, for the murder of Virginia Johnson. The strongest evidence against Long was the hair and fiber evidence in the trial. Authorities found the red carpet fibers and several strands of Long's hair on her clothing and body. But besides the forensic evidence, they had something even better, a confession. The trial lasted a little over a week. Long was found guilty of Virginia Johnson's murder and received the death penalty. This happened in Florida back in the 1980s, so he was sentenced to die by the electric chair. The next case to go to trial happened in Hillsborough County. 
This time, he was charged with Michelle Sims' murder. After the Michelle Sims case, prosecutors planned to charge him with Karen Dinsfriend's murder. Hillsborough County prosecutors planned to charge him with these two murders first because they had the strongest forensic evidence. But before either trial could begin, Bobby Long's public defender struck up a deal with prosecutors. His defense attorney asked the state if they were open to a plea bargain in exchange for Bobby Long's guilty plea. We know that plea bargains are used all of the time in our criminal justice system, at least here in the U.S. They're probably used a lot more than you think. In fact, in the United States, most criminal cases end not with jury trials, but with plea bargains. Plea bargains can happen at any stage of the case, from the time of arrest, through pretrial hearings, even up to the first day of trial. A criminal defendant can decide to work with the prosecution and accept a plea bargain in exchange for a guilty plea. They can plead guilty to some or all of the charges. We know that there are a lot of benefits to plea bargains. For the defendant, the most significant benefit to plea, to plea bargains is that they take away the stress and uncertainty of a criminal trial. They usually involve the defendant receiving a reduced sentence. For the state, it saves a ton of money. It saves money because fewer cases are going down the court's pipeline and fewer cases are going to trial. In the United States, in the U.S., the average death penalty case, wait for it, the average death penalty case costs $1.3 million. Now, that's on the higher end because in comparison, a non-death penalty murder case can cost around $600,000. So in the end, what I'm trying to say is that these are not cheap events. Not only does it save money referring to plea bargains, but they also save time. If every case went all the way to trial, it would take years to revolve to resolve even minor charges. And for death penalty cases, it might even take decades to go to trial. But there are also known disadvantages to plea bargains. Plea bargains encourage innocent people to plead guilty for crimes they didn't commit. Now, I know what you're thinking because I've often thought the same thing. Who would agree to plead guilty for a crime they didn't commit? Well, it happens a lot more than you may think. Imagine this. You're on trial for a simple assault. You know you didn't do it, but the state has built a strong circumstantial case against you. They've created this powerful narrative that they're about to tell the jury about how you're guilty of this assault. There's no forensic evidence, but you know it doesn't look good. Let's say you were at the scene of the assault. You don't have an alibi. You've got a criminal record already. So instead of taking the case all the way to trial, where you're facing a maximum of, let's say, three to five years in federal prison, 
you agree to a plea bargain that gives you, let's say, one year of probation instead. So instead of going or facing the possibility of going to prison for three to five years, losing your job, having three to five years away from your family, you're the sole breadwinner, they're going to suffer without you because you're going to be in prison for three to five years. You know you didn't do it, but instead you agree to this plea bargain. You tell the state that you're willing to plead guilty because if you do plead guilty instead of going to federal prison and having your life and freedom taken away, you are going to receive one year of supervised probation instead. You get to stay free. You get to keep your job. You get to keep financially supporting your family. It's the ultimate deal or no deal game, right? Now, in Bobby Long's case, the Hillsborough County State Attorney's Office partnered with the Public Defender's Office, who was representing Long. They got together for a plea bargain. And once they sat down and talked through the facts of the case, they reached a plea bargain for eight murders and the kidnapping and rape of Lisa McVeigh. So on September 24th, 1985, Long pled guilty in all nine cases. In exchange, the court sentenced him to 26 life sentences without the possibility of parole. 24 of those life sentences were to be served concurrently at the same time. And then two of the life sentences were to run consecutively to the first 24. He also received an additional seven life sentences with the possibility of parole after 25 years. But the prosecution still wasn't done. They got a guilty plea and didn't have to take the case to trial. But in this plea agreement, they also retained the option to seek the death penalty for the murder of Michelle Sims. In July 1986, the court heard arguments for sentencing in the Michelle Sims case. Long's public defender argued for life in prison, like the other cases. The prosecution, on the other hand, argued for the death penalty. The sentencing hearing lasted one week and resulted in Long's second death sentence. Once again, he was found guilty in the Michelle Sims case and was sentenced to die in Florida's electric chair. Following the court hearings in Hillsborough County, Long appealed his conviction and death sentence in the death of Virginia Johnson. Remember, Long was first charged in Dade City before his case went to Hillsborough County. This was also his first death sentence before the Michelle Sims one. The Pasco County Appellate Court agreed with Long and his public defenders and overturned his conviction and overturned his death sentence. That's because the trial court in Virginia Johnson's case shouldn't have allowed the state to tell the jury about his pending plea agreement with Hillsborough prosecutors for the nine other murders. The appellate court ruled that the trial court shouldn't have cited the Hillsborough case to the jury, and that this decision likely influenced the jury's decision to vote for the death penalty in Virginia Johnson's case. So this decision may have been a small victory for Long, 
But let's remember, this is only one of his death sentences. Okay, he still got the other death sentence for Michelle Sims. So even though he got one death sentence vacated, overturned, he still has another one. While on death row, Long accused the Capital Collateral Regional Council of violating his client attorney privilege for releasing some private letters to a book author. The Capital Collateral Regional Council is the state office representing inmates on death row. They are basically public defenders. So in 1999, Long accused his attorneys of releasing his private letters to book authors without his consent, which, if true, would violate his client attorney privilege. He also accused them of running a, quote, death pool. He claimed the death row attorneys were betting on inmates' execution dates. Long petitioned the court to release the agency as attorney with these two claims. Instead of merely taking Long's word for it, the state conducted a lengthy investigation into his allegations. The investigation didn't find any evidence to support either one of his claims. There was no book deals and there was no quote-unquote death pool. Bobby Joe Long, once known as the classified ad rapist, sat on death row for three decades. Until April 23, 2019, when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed his death warrant. Long continued to fight to have his death sentence overturned following the signed death warrant. But every appeal was ultimately denied, and he was executed by lethal injection at 6.55 p.m. on May 23, 2019. Although he'd been originally sentenced to die by electric chair, Florida got rid of the chair and replaced their executions with lethal injections while he'd been incarcerated, something that many death penalty states have recently adopted. The two surviving victims attended his execution, Lisa McVeigh and Linda Nuttall. Following his execution, Lisa McVeigh said this, quote, God has shown me the only way to really be free when someone bestows injustice against you, is complete forgiveness. My life changed forever and for the better. I choose not to remain a victim. I choose to live. End quote. Linda Nuttall also spoke after the execution. She and her husband placed a classified ad in the Penny Saver back in 1984. Long responded to the ad and when he got to her house, he sexually assaulted Linda. In her statement, she said this, quote, It's just surreal, but it closes another door for me, end quote. Her husband, Kevin Nuttall, had this to say, quote, He got what he deserved. Today's just another chapter, end quote. Bobby Joe Long was executed without incident, he was one of 22 prisoners executed in the U.S. in 2019. His execution consisted of a three-drug protocol. First, he was given a sedative, followed by a second drug to paralyze him, and a third drug, potassium chloride, to stop his heart. He was 65 years old. He was served his last meal at 9.30 a.m., 
consisting of roast beef, bacon, french fries, and soda. The classified ad rapist talked his way to get inside his victims' homes. He lied to rape these innocent women. He used words, actions, and ropes. Yet when judgment came, when his time to show remorse came, the coward couldn't even open his mouth. At his execution, he had no words, he had no statement. He had no final words. To share your thoughts on Bobby Joe Long, the classified ad rapist, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Forensic Tales. Do you think he should have been executed? Or do you think he should have received life in prison without the possibility of parole? To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. To check out photos from the case, be sure to head to our website, ForensicTales.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. In addition, for supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or spreading the good word about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., David B., Paula G., Selena C., Nicole G., Christine B., Karen D., and Nancy H. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. Your support means the world to me. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.